You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Lord Jesus, thank you for bringing us together this morning. We're thankful for um, what you have given us in worship today, and I pray for those who are here to, to listen and for the teacher that you would you would bless us and open our, our hearts and our minds to see what it is you have to teach us from your word. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're, we're in the middle of a... We're not really in the middle. I started a series on the Ten Commandments about two years ago, it feels like. Um, and here we are again. Um, so I, I don't really want to put the car completely in reverse, but let, let me say a few introductory uh, comments about about the, the Ten Commandments and the, and the way in which the, the, the law, and, and this is what we're talking about here, the law, uh, what role it plays in, in the life of, of the believer. And I think this is the question that we're trying to raise. And, and, and the question is somewhat of a challenging one because of the way in which our tradition, the Protestant tradition, um, kind of struggles to understand what the Bible in its totality says about the law. Um, So, for example, we know that the Apostle Paul tells us that the the law served as a kind of schoolmaster to prepare us for Christ, to show us our need of a Savior. And we recognize that as true. I mean, we, we know that the law exists to let us know what God's will is for humanity, and what God requires from humanity, especially in its moral character. And because of that, we recognize that we, we have an inability to keep the law in such a way that it can render us righteous before the Lord. That's something I think we all get. That's kind of evangelical Christianity 101. Um, this is the logic of the book of Deuteronomy. I set before you today a path of life or a path of death follow in my commandments and my teaching, and this is the way in which you go toward life. Go against these teachings, and this is the way toward death. And you flip the page, and you're in Joshua, and then Judges, and Kings, and Samuel, and you see a long history of Israel basically attesting to the fact that humanity is incapable of following in their own way the law that would lead them ultimately to life. And that's, by the way, not merely a New Testament understanding of the law. That is an Old Testament understanding as well. Ezekiel the prophet says, that which was given to you as the means of your life has actually become the instrument of your death. So we we get that. We understand that the law lets us know that we are sinners in need of a Savior. We need someone other than us to keep and fulfill that law and to come under the consequences of that law, its judgment for our salvation. And that is what we confess as Christians. Jesus lived life for us and died death for us. The old Protestant theologians would call that the active and the passive obedience of Jesus. He was actively obedient in that he lived in accord with the totality of the law, and he was passive in his obedience because Jesus also suffered the judgment of the law that was rendered to his people because of their inability to keep it. So he both lived for us and he died for us. And we say that that's true. And here's the, here's the hard part of the Bible. The hard part of the Bible is right when you think you have something grasped, um, other parts in the Bible come in to say, well, have you thought about it also from this perspective? 
Which, which means that we have to hold certain things together that we might want to sort of simplify with more simple solutions. Um, our articles of religion talk about this in one of my favorite articles, Article 20. If I got an Anglican tattoo, it would probably be Article 20. Um, and, and what does Article... T- I'm not getting one. What, what does Article t- 20 say? Um, the church has the ability to render judgments in terms of the way in which the church is to order itself. But the church cannot authorize anything that's contradictory to what the Bible claims, number one. And number two, and this is the part that I like, you cannot read one part of Scripture as if it's repugnant to another part. I I call that the non-repugnant reading strategy of the Bible. Um, So that requires us to read the Bible in a way that holds together certain truths in tension. So, can I say this to you in terms of of the law, of God's commands, of of, of His call to obedience? We recognize truly and really that the Bible tells us we cannot attain a saving righteousness by attending to the law. Sin has seen to it that that is an impossibility for human beings. We We need the gospel of Christ to save us. And there are also texts in the Bible, like Psalm 19, that says, I This is the same David, by the way, who prayed Psalm 51 about being crushed by sin. The same David could say, your law, your instruction is sweeter to me than life. It's better than honey of the honeycomb. I love your law. Um, You can read all of Psalm 119, which lets you know that the entirety of 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 a human's existence, a Christian's existence, is a call to live into the form and the shape of a Christian life lived before God in accordance with His instruction. So what role does this play then? I mean, the the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments provide for us a basic strategy and understanding of what God's will is for human beings, for Christians, to live in the fullness of what God intends human beings to be and to do. And that's really important. Because we recognize then that the law or these Ten Commandments provide for us the shape of what Christian existence actually looks like. It doesn't leave us to our own imaginations to sort this out. God has given us these laws here, these ten decorative commandments to help shape our understanding of what it means to live a life that's faithful before the Lord. Um, let me say a, f- a few other things about, about this in terms of holiness. That's the term we haven't used yet, but that's what we're talking about, holiness. At the very core of an understanding of holiness, and, and what, what does holiness mean? Holiness means being set apart to something else. When, when the, the angels are crying out in Isaiah 6, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, Zabaoth. What they are claiming is not just the moral purity of God, they are claiming that, but what they're also claiming is that God is distinct from everything else. He's set apart, He's other. Um, And so the call of God on His people is to be a holy people. And this is crucial um, out of Exodus chapter 19. I wanted to read this to you. Exodus chapter 19, verses 4 through uh, 6 says, You yourselves have seen 
What I did to the Egyptians and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And here's the phrase that I want you to sort of pack away. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. Um, so what you have here is a claim that Israel is called to be God's special possession, his kingdom possession, that indicates to the world, and this is really crucial, by the nature of its very life and being, what it looks like to live in covenant relationship with the living God. What does it look like to be God's people? And the church is called to live into that dynamic and that reality that we are called as a people, and think about it in cultural terms, to be our own culture. A culture that gives itself to um, the commands and the law of God so that our, our common life together, by God's grace, witnesses to the world what it looks like to live in covenant communion with the living Lord Jesus Christ. Look at the ways in which these people love one another. That was our reading today in the Gospel of John. Look at how they love one another. Now, that's a testimony to the kingdom of God um, in, our, in our midst. Look at how they grieve together. Look at, how they look at how they engage the whole concept of romance together. Look at the way in which they go toward death together. Look at the way in which they think about capital and property and wealth together. And all these things attest to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in their lives, a, a covenant, a holy um, kingdom of, of priests. So this understanding of the law then, within the frame of grace, helps us know what it is that God calls us to be and to do in the world as witnesses to His Lordship and His, and His role as the Savior um, of, of our lives. Now, I want to talk a little bit about um, what, what's a, a classic reformational formula um, for how we understand the ways in which God's instruction shapes a Christian life before the Lord. And these are the terms... That, that are used within, within this reformational tradition. And they are uh, mortification, I know no, no quiz next week, mortification and vivification. Or, or to put it in other terms, putting things to death and being made alive. Now we talk a lot around the, around the Advent about the Christian life being a life of repentance. In other words, we don't just repent once and then get our Christian PGA cards so we can go put around on the tour. Um, repentance is the character of what it means to be a Christian. And I think, I'm trying to give some thought to this, I think these categories of mortification and vivification can help put some flesh on the bones of what the life of repentance actually looks like. What does the life of repentance looks like, look like? Answer, putting to death the flesh and being made alive by the Spirit to what God has called us to be and to do in the world. We're putting to death and we're being made alive to the truth of what we are. And, and this is why you and I will never escape that dynamic in this world, because we're caught in the overlap of the ages. 
Now, you might not think of yourself in these terms because tomorrow we're going to drive around and get gas and shuttle some kids around and you're going to go to work and check your inbox. And so we're going to live normal life. But the Bible wants you to know that in that normal life that you're living, in this Christian existence of yours, you are caught in the overlap of the ages. The old age, which is the age of sin and death, and the new age, which is the age of the resurrection of the dead. You are living fully, and let's kind of get our minds around this, but you're living fully into the reality of both of those dynamics in your existence now. Now in time, thanks be to God, one will give way to the other. And we will only know the age of the resurrection. That will come. But right now, we're caught in the overlap of the ages. And being caught in the overlap of the ages means that our struggle with putting sin to death and being made alive to the reality of the resurrection of the dead, who we already are in Christ, that is a tension that you will live in. And God calls you to live into that tension until the day that you breathe your last. Um, So we're putting things to death and we're being made alive. And all of that, from Paul's perspective, is under the umbrella of a very crucial term. Namely, I am not my own, but I've been bought by a price. I am another's. I'm a servant of Christ. I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. My identity is already an identity that's found outside of myself in Him. And can I, uh, this is, I'm off script, whatever that is. Um, but I, I will tell you that that, that that dynamic, Paul, I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That dynamic of, an, of the understanding of the self, of an identity, will become and is increasingly problematic and countercultural in the Western world. I mean, we, we live in a moment right now where a certain kind of notion of freedom, where freedom is the autonomy of the individual self, um, taken away from all authoritative structures. I determine my own self and my own identity, and everything around me has to kind of accord itself to my self-understanding. That, that is a dominant philosophical system and self-understanding among many people today. I mean, this is the reason why you hear terms like triggered and microaggressed and all this stuff becoming popular today because people kind of live within the frame of their own individuality and selfhood and they identify themselves in that way primarily and then the whole world has to kind of accord with that. Um, There's a technical philosophical term for this. It's called solipsism. Um, Who made your parents angsty and studied philosophy in undergrad? Um, like, how are you going to pay the bills with that degree? Um, solipsism is the, is the philosophical um, understanding that the, the, the external world does not exist outside of my own individual self. So you reduce the self and the whole of, the, of reality to my own experience of it. Um, Alvin Plantinga, who's a kind of leading Christian philosopher, I told this incredible joke about solipsism um, where he was at some sort of conference apparently and there was a bona fide solipsist philosopher that was presenting and the faculty secretary was there and Plantinga said he pulled her to the side and he said, what's it like working for a real solipsist? And uh, this classic secretary says, we're really nice to him because if he goes, we all go. <laughs> I was like, oh, that was pretty good. Um, 
So, you know, so we, so we live within a world that's increasingly fragmented in that way. Um, and, and, and let me just say to you, and, and, I'm, and I'm not trying to in any way diminish the, the complicated moment that we're in in the West. I mean, it's going gonna, it's gonna to take some real hard work for Christians to think about these things in our moment, in Christian ways. But, but can I just suggest this to you? Um, that understanding of freedom in terms of the individuality of the self is not an option for a Christian. I think that, that's, that's the point. That's not, when, when the Bible speaks about freedom, and the Bible is a book about freedom, freedom is not found by the releasing of the individuality of the self. Freedom is found in being a servant to Christ. That's where real freedom is. Uh, and, and, this is, and this is why I think we feel the tension of it. We fight against this because we know that we think real freedom is going to be found elsewhere only to find out what? That that real freedom leads to its own kind of tyranny, the tyranny of the self. Look at the mental health disorders in our Western world right now. They're off the charts. This stuff does not lead to health. It leads to what Kierkegaard called the greatest sickness, the sickness unto death, namely despair. So we're living in this. And here you have the Gospels and the Old Testament, this notion of a kingdom of priests saying, hey, do you want to live in genuine freedom? You want to know what freedom really is? Freedom is found by your loyalty and your commitment to God and to God alone in Jesus Christ. For freedom, Christ has set you free. And by the way, that is a freedom from the tyranny of the self. We can tyrannize ourselves. It's a freedom from the tyranny of ourselves so that we can do what? Love God and love our neighbor. So that we can enter into the dynamics of the, drum roll please, Ten Commandments. It's interesting, isn't it, right? That freedom that we're called to is a freedom from the tyranny of ourselves, even self-accusation, because we know that we are safe and complete and redeemed in Christ, so that we can what? Find genuine freedom in loving God and in loving our neighbor. And this is why um, the first commandment is the most important commandment of them all. Let me read this to you. Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods besides me. That's not number one of ten. That's number one by which the whole of God's command on our lives is meant to be understood. No other gods besides me. And what you're going to find through the whole history of Israel, you don't even blink in the book of Exodus, and we find ourselves at the golden calf encounter, don't we? Um, it is our tendency, if left to ourselves, to buck against the first commandment at every turn. This is why John Calvin called our hearts an idol factory. We, we, are, give, we are predisposed to, find, to seek to find rest and freedom um, in that which we can name and control. That's just how we're hardwired. And the beauty of the gospel, even revealed here in the law, is that true freedom is not found in uh, defining rest according to our own terms, but it's found in recognizing there are no other gods besides Him. Now, this is a really easy verse. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's easy. No other gods besides me. But 
actually, it's not all that easy. Wouldn't you know that the Bible would do this to you? The first part of this commandment is clear. You shall have no other gods. It's the second part, though, that's not immediately clear. Um, Besides me. Literally, it's before me. Um, So Patrick Miller, who has written a really good book on the Ten Commandments, I I commend it to all of you. Patrick Miller says that these are all the ways in which that phrase might be understood. Number one, before me could be understood as in front of me. Um, Number two, it could be read as besides me, that is alongside of me. Or number three, it could be read as in my place or instead of me. Or number four, it could be in hostile confrontation with me or against my face. And, and here you have Patrick Miller saying it can be all of those. They don't need to be read as mutually exclusive. In fact, they probably need to be read as complementary the one to the other. So, so let, let me just unpack this a little bit for you. N- number one, to say that there are no other gods in front of this deity means that no other god can take a place prior to the Lord of Israel. So in other words, you, you'll see this tendency, especially within the ancient Near Eastern world, where they would hedge their religious bets. Right? We're, we're, we're going to, during the rain season, uh, let's, we need a little bail now. Um, during you know, the, the winter, a little Asherah worship, that can't hurt anybody. We'll, we'll hedge your bets here. And here he's saying, you can't have one deity that's before me, number, or, or in priority to me. Number two, you can't have any deity alongside this deity. Now, th- this is the one that I think it's easy for us to sort of dismiss as ancient problems. But at its very core here, I think what the scriptures are calling us to is a proper ordering of our desires. All of us can take those things that are good that God has given us in this world and make them ultimate and final. And here I think you have the first commandment saying, you can't have other gods that are either prior to me or that come alongside of me. You can't have this kind of syncretistic blending of your devotion so that you'll give a little bit here and a little bit there. I I want all of your devotion. And and here's the challenge that I think we all feel. How do I give God all of my devotion when I feel such strong feelings and love and a call vocationally to so many other things? My children, um, my, 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 my work and my business, my family, my pleasures and my hobbies, the things that I love in this world. How do I love God ultimately and still engage those things and not become a monk. See, I think it's, it's the, the well, I don't know if I want this repeated, but here I go. The, the monk path's in some ways almost easier. You just kind of just renounce all that and enter into the monastery and then the, the abbot will make it easy for you. Now, I, that, that's very unnuanced what I just said. Um, but you can, I think you take the point. I, I'm called to all of these areas of my life that require affection and devotion for them to operate properly. Well, how in the world do I do that and and commit myself to the first commandment? And I think the answer to that is we recognize all of those things do not come 
before Him. They are all in service of Him. And the challenge, mortification and vivification, that we live into as Christians again until the day we breathe our last is the proper ordering of our desires. And I think it's why we have to pray a lot. I think it's why we need friends in our lives who can kind of sort of speak into it and say, hey, you know, love you, praying for you, think about, I've got some people who do that in my life. When we take things that are good and we make them ultimate and we squeeze them and hold on to them, and it's as if God is saying to us again and again, those are gifts that I've given to you, but they're not ends. They're instruments for your glorification and your love and your delight in me. No God but me. And it's that commandment there that frames, the, I would say, the very heart of biblical religion. No God but Him. Recognizing that the counter of this is we are being offered alien gods all the time. And we will play in that field as often as we can if we think that it will provide for us the rest and the satisfaction that we're after. Um, and, an explanation, I think, of, um, of the first commandment, or one, one, of the, one of the better ones, is Deuteronomy um, 6.4. Hear, O Israel, this is the Shema, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's how all of our translations do that. Can I go kind of Hebrew geeky on you for a second? Um, the, the Hebrew term for one is echad. Um, and echad can be one, but it can also speak to singularity. Can, can I gloss it this way? And I think this is... A, probably the way it should be glossed. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord alone. None other. And then what's the next phrase? And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And then if I can again kind of go Hebrew geeky on you here, um, the last part says, with, was typically translated with all your might. I, I, don't, I think that that third of the three is an adverb that's really meant to describe the first two. So it would be something like this. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your thinking mechanism, all of, all of, your, all of your soul, that is your, your effective, your feeling mechanism, and very, very much. Do, do all that in a very, very much kind of way. So what, what you have here in Deuteronomy 6.4 is this beautiful explication of the first commandment. No God but me. Exclusive loyalty to me. True freedom found in delighting in me. Loving the Lord your God. Loyalty to Him and loyalty alone. And this is crucial, isn't it? Because love as an affection is a very hard thing to command. If we think of love primarily in romantic and affectionate terms. And I have a little kind of romantic side with me. I like all that stuff. Um, but that's not the soil from which faithfulness can grow, by the way, in any relationship. I see a lot of gray hair in here, and people have been married for a while. I mean, you know this. I mean, if you think that 21-year-old infatuation stuff is enough to sustain a marriage to 50 years, like, good luck. And by the way... There, there's, there's no call to be cynical about that. I remember when Naomi and I were engaged, and I promised myself I would never do this. We just, people, people just want to start giving you advice. You know? um, it's like you're not asking for it. People want to give it. And I, I can remember people saying, oh, you're, it's, it's all lovey-dovey now. You just wait. I'm like, well, that's kind of a horrible thing to say. Um, you know? and, uh, and they were right. I get it. You know, they didn't have to say it. They were right. I mean, we, we understand this. Um, because affection, in, in, in terms of sort of the Western romance tradition, 
it's not the soil from which covenantal faithfulness can grow. It's the product. It's, it's the result. Isn't it interesting that in the Jewish tradition, they put the Song of Solomon early in Solomon's life? That's when he was young, virile, you know, all into that sort of hot and heavy passion. You know where the Christian tradition often put Song of Solomon? In Solomon's later life, reflecting on the beauty of what true love is as it grows from a life of faithful devotion to the risen Lord. What does Deuteronomy 6 and Exodus chapter 20, verse 3 and 4 tell us about our relationship with God? That He wants our loyalty and our devotion to Him and to Him alone. And that, by the way, is the core definition of biblical love. I'm devoted and I'm loyal to you, knowing that that's the fertile soil out of which affection, Song of Solomon, Hosea, Psalm 119, real affection can grow out of that. And it's true about our relationship with God. It's true about our relationship with our friends and our family, our spouses. And it's true even in our relationships here in the church. Loyalty to one another, loyalty to the Lord, is the seed out of which true um, faithfulness and affection can grow. These are challenging things, I think, because the first commandment shapes for us what the form of the obedient life looks like at its very basic level. The call to obedience is a call to recognize and to enter into a lifelong dynamic of a commitment to the Lord and to the Lord alone. Okay? Now, we're going to talk some more about these other commandments because they're related to it. Right? You've got two tables of the law. Right after the call to have no other gods, there's the warning about making images for the intention of worshiping them. Then we have to talk about the Sabbath day a little bit. What in the world does that mean for Christians? Don't miss that Sunday. Um, Is the Sabbath principle still at play for us? Um, Not taking the name of the Lord our God in vain, which I don't necessarily think is an injunction against OMG, but it's it's deeper than that. Um, So we're going to talk about, for a couple more weeks, the first table of the law, and then we're going to spend a majority of our time, as we sort of move into June, speaking about the second table of the law. What does it mean to honor our father and our mother? What does it mean not to kill? And we'll think about those in terms of bonds, the marriage bond, the life bond, um, and what those bonds mean for Christians in the way in which they they shape um, the, uh, the active life of the Christian, okay? Now, I don't know, we have, we, we have like three minutes. You want to talk about anything? <laughs> yeah, ask some questions. That, that is a, and the way you frame that, I think, is, is spot on. The, the, the law's role in the life of the Christian in terms of its sweetness and its accusation sits right on top of our living in our own lives in the overlap of the ages. So the self that's still in the old self We need the law to accuse us, to drive us to a savior. The law that's living in the fullness of its resurrected self, that's the sweetness of the law that calls us to that form of being. And I think you see that perfectly with David in the Psalms. I mean, I believe the Psalms were accusatory for him in that moment. He had sinned. He had broken the law. He wasn't repentant. And God was after him, driving him to himself. Which, by the way, is an act of grace. It's not kind of the Lord to leave us in our lawlessness. By by the way, Romans chapter 1 calls that the wrath of God. The wrath of God is described in Romans 1 as God giving us over to our ultimate desires. You want the creature more than the creator? God's wrath is saying, I'll let you have it. 
So, so why my, my, I mean, this is a very pedestrian illustration, but it's why my wife tells our boys regularly, I pray you get caught, right? <laughs> because that's the, it's, it, as, as hard as it's going to be for all of us, it's the, the loving thing is to get caught. David gets caught in Psalm 32. These penitential psalms are powerful. My bones broke inside of me, is what David says in Psalm 32. Psalm 51, I was wasting away. Wash me, make me clean. So you see that there, and that's the self-same David who in other contexts can say, the law is not accusing me, it's giving me a green field to live in the fullness of what life could look like before the Lord. And there's joy to be found in that. Real freedom. What our articles of religion say is a life pleasing to God. When you try to attend to the law in order to maintain your own righteousness before the Lord, that's not pleasing to Him. That's actually an act of our own spiritual pride. But when we recognize who we are completely in Christ, and then by His grace live into that call, our articles of religion say that makes God happy. We, We have to, as Christians, be able to talk about a life that's pleasing to God without falling prey to moralism or legalism. There's got to be a way of talking about that, and I think that's what we're trying to provide some grammar for. That's a great, great question. Anybody else want to? Yes, from the back. Yeah. That's very good. And I mean, I think this is where, you know, we, we, I hope you've all been around me enough to know that this doesn't work. You know, I think Old Testament kind of law, New Testament's all kind of happy grace stuff. Is it, those categories don't work. I mean, think about, in light of what Jane just read, the Great Commission. What does making disciples look like? Two things, baptizing them, and then what's the next part? Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And, and, okay, well, Jesus, what did you command us in Matthew's gospel? In Matthew's gospel, Jesus commands us in terms, think Sermon on the Mount, of the law understood through the lens of the person and work of Jesus. This is why I think the Apostle Paul in Galatians 6 could say, when you bear one another's burdens, you fulfill the law of Christ. Well, what law is that? It's the, the law, the moral law of God, understood through the lens of the completed work of Jesus Christ. So I, I think this sort of notion of commandment and a call to obedience, a call to loyalty, it's very much within the lips of Jesus himself. That's what he's, he's instructing his own people in. That's, that's very helpful. Thank you, Jane. Come on. Oh, yes, ma'am. Oh, I have another. You're probably going to want to do this. He has to oh, I mean, you, that other stuff. And you're, you're raising a... We're going to deal with this later. Okay. Um, <laughs> but you're raising a great question. I mean, the, que- the question, and this is one that both the Jewish and the Christian tradition sort of wrestle with. What, what do we do with figures like Abraham's outside of Torah, t- temporally speaking? Um, what about Job? Job's someone that's operating in this smoke and haze sort of, sort of sphere outside of the covenant community of Torah. Um, Enoch, Melchizedek. So you've got all these figures that are deemed as righteous, and yet they're operating in some sense not within the strictures of Torah understood via the framework of Sinai. It's, it's, a, it's a large question, I, but I think it speaks to something about the transcendence, at least, of the moral law itself um, to all times and places. I think that's, that's what we're speaking to here. And once you start getting into the complicated 
nitpicky stuff, and, and, and this is worth thinking about, right? But I'm, I didn't round the corners of my beard this morning. I would eat shrimp tonight. I mean, there, there are things that we're doing that are technically Torah-breaking that within the Christian tradition, we've recognized those as ceremonial or some other facet of the law that at the end of the day existed in some form just to make Israel weird. <laughs> I mean, I think... In other words, just to make them distinct. It wasn't like it was holier to have your beard rounded. But, but the point was, I want you looking different than the Canaanite culture around you. And here are some of these laws that I'm going to give you to do that. And, and, and it's more these things get really intertwined. It's a nice schema to break these things up into moral, civil, and ceremonial. And, and, the, and the Old Testament doesn't always, always allow us to live into that nice, tight schema. It's more complicated than that. Um, but some of those strange things that Abraham knew nothing about um, were there to make Israel a peculiar people, a holy people. To kind of say, well, what's, what's going on with them? Um, those things, I think for sure, have been done away because our peculiarity is in our worship of, of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. That's what makes us peculiar in the world. We're loyal to Him and to Him alone. And all of our other loyalties, which are important, our political loyalties, our loyalties to the city of this earth, all of the Bible does not downplay those. They're important for the sake of human flourishing, but they are ordered themselves toward our ultimate loyalty to the Lord. And that's that constant reordering that I think we're having to do. The first commandment is a commandment that we must wrestle with every day. I think it was Joe Gibbs. I can't remember. Maybe it was Joe Gibbs. Someone told me that they had heard someone encourage him. I think it was Joe to begin every day of his life with the Sursum Corda. You open up your eyes, Lord, I lift up my heart. I lift my heart to you. What we do in our, in our, in our Eucharistic prayers. Um, and I think there's really something beautiful about that. Because in effect, what beginning each day with the Sursum Corda says is, Lord, by your grace, call me to live in the first commandment again. I I'm lifting my heart up to you. And everything before my day today is in service of my ultimate loyalty to you. Not in tension with that, but in service of it. I think that's, that's the call. Lord Jesus, bless these friends as they go their way. And, and um, Lord, help us. We, we, uh, we need your spirit to guide us to be our teacher. We're so grateful for your word and the way in which it continues to speak in such powerful ways. Um, Lord, where we are arrogant, I pray that you will give us humility. Where we are fearful, I pray that you will give us courage. Where we are unclear, I pray that you'll give us the clarity of your word. And Lord, where we feel hopeless, I pray that you'll fill us with the hope of the truth revealed in your Son. Lord, let us put things to death and live into the fullness of the life that you've called us to live into. You didn't come, Lord, to call us out of life. You came to give us life and to give us life abundantly. And we thank you for being the God of the living. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.